There are many things that we think of as obedience that I want to argue are not actually obedience. Compliance is not obedience. Obedience is not a virtue that one can practice in isolation. By definition, obedience involves other people. These judgments we're making are in fact based on our own epistemological world, right? What do we do when we disagree about epistemology, when we disagree about the basic facts of the matter or about the worldview or, or whatever it is that we use to make these judgments? Getting into a situation is a bad time to think about where your red line is. My guest today is Dr. Pauline Shanks-Corinne, who is the Stockdale Chair and Professor of Professional Military Ethics at the US Naval War College, where she specializes in military ethics, just war tradition, and applied ethics. Her recent publications include When Less is Not More, Expanding the Combatant-Non-Combatant Distinction, With Fear and Trembling, A Qualified Defense of Non-Lethal Weapons, and Achilles Goes Asymmetrical, The Warrior, Military Ethics, and Contemporary Warfare. Additionally, Pauline was a featured contributor for The Strategy Bridge and has published in Clear Defense, The Wavell Room, Newsweek, War on the Rocks, Grounded Curiosity, US Naval Institute Proceedings, Just Security, as well as a variety of academic journals. She's also the author of the book I just finished, titled On Obedience, Contrasting Philosophies for Military, Citizenry, and Community, which is the topic of our discussion today. As you will find out, the subject matter that this book addresses goes to the core of what it means to be a soldier, but also what it means to be a citizen. Both, as we'll find out, are infused with certain rights and responsibilities, which are critical to the functioning of our democracies, but are rarely discussed. Pauline, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Thank you so much for having me. And I'll just say up front that I'm here in my personal capacity and not representing the views of the Department of Defense. Department of Navy or the U.S. Naval War College, but super excited to be here and super excited that you read my book. Yeah, and, and wonderful. Firstly, thank you for, for clarifying that, but also as far as the book is concerned, uh, uh, as I mentioned to you before, I showed you the uh, just the number of tags I've got in the book. Uh, I think I'm probably around 30, uh, which I think ought to be indicative of what I thought of the book and its importance uh, and how many subjects it's, it covers uh, that are absolutely critical to as I said in the intro, understanding what it means to be a soldier, but also the roles and responsibilities of uh, of citizens. I feel it's one of those books that I'll keep going back to time and time again because each chapter I think has its you know almost its own book within it uh, <laughs> that one could explore and and, and unpack uh, in a lot more detail. So so thank you for writing it. Thank you. Well, <laughs> I, I wrote it for people to read who are not just academics. So it's very gratifying that people who are not philosophers are reading it. And the, the tags in the book may also be your points of rebuttal, you know, which is fine too. As philosophers, <laughs> we like that. So they're not, they're not rebuttal. They, I think they're, they're questions. And I, and I know I've sent you a couple uh, ahead of, uh, ahead of time, but yeah, certainly a couple of questions that were inspired, but key, key points in the book, uh, at least that it uh, resonated with me now, but maybe before we dive into the kind of obedience idea and what it means, uh, maybe we can find out a little bit about you and what motivated Firstly, your entry into philosophy, and then why military ethics? Where does it come from for you? So my my journey is not a linear 
journey by any means. My father was an Air Force non-commissioned officer. Uh, he was a missileer and so grew up watching war movies and arguing with my father about whether air power uh, was supreme. I thought it wasn't and he thought it was. So uh, to learn to, to argue and, and debate things pretty early on. But I, I went to college thinking I was going to go to law school and got to college and took an honors, was in the honors program. The first class was a philosophy class, ancient Greek philosophy. And so kind of got into philosophy in, in that way. But in my third year, I took a philosophy of law class where we talked about action and intention and mens rea. And also at the same time, had been interested in international relations, but couldn't, I couldn't decide which of those I wanted yeah. to do. Yeah. And so in my senior year, I did foreign policy semester at American University in Washington, D.C. So it was yeah. my version of study abroad because my dad wouldn't bring for me to go overseas. We said, well, you can go to D.C. That's practically a foreign country anyway. Um, and, and got oh, there and funny. did a wonderful internship, but discovered that I really, that wasn't my vibe. So decided to go to graduate school in philosophy. Um, and I went to the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg for my master's and then went to Temple in Philadelphia for my Ph.D. and took a military ethics class there. But it wasn't until I took that class that I really realized how philosophy and international relations, how my interests fit together. And so that's kind of that's how I got into military ethics. And I always enjoyed philosophy, but there, there were pieces of it that were too abstract for me. And I enjoyed international relations, but there were pieces that weren't conceptual mm, enough mm, for me. Mm. So military ethics was kind of the natural blending of those to um, somewhere in an Aristotelian mean. Why is that? I mean, maybe maybe it's obvious uh, to some, but uh, uh, why is military ethics a link between international relations and philosophy? Because I think military ethics asks questions about the morality and the ethics of things that we do in international relations, specifically mm. around questions of war and when we engage in war and when we ought to engage in war. At least when I was in college, classical realism held sway. This was like in the late mm. 80s, uh, early 90s. Now I'm betraying my uh, antiquity <laughs> here. But, you know, it was it was the end of the Cold War. And so realism, classical realism was still very much what my professors were teaching. And there was no discussion of ethics and international Relations. So military ethics was sort of the place sort of where they can, where the two can have conversation with each other. They don't always have conversations mm, with each other. Mm, mm. And one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in, especially now that I teach at the War College, is what's the intersection between strategy and ethics. Mm, okay. uh, so I spent last term teaching in our strategy and policy class and 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 doing what I call ethical experiments, trying to get my students to think about ethics and strategy, um, which yeah. was, they were good. They were good sports, um, and it was really interesting. But but so it's a it's sort of a melding of two different disciplines, um, mm. at least two for me. And I was never. I'm not the kind of person that can just sort of settle in one like place. Yeah, so yeah, I like yeah. To go back and forth. Um, which if you read the book, there's a lot of like you know, Henry V in one chapter, and then there's some discussion of Aristotle, and then there's Hume, and yeah. then there's some moral psychology. And so yeah. I was never really good at focus. No, but it's a, but I think that's what gives gives your argument depth, because I think you straddle a number of 
topics, and it, and it won't resonate with just one uh, stream of thought or one uh, right. school of thought. Uh, I mean, just even in this 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 last answer, you've straddled you know three or four ultimately domains. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, real politic and might is right, and how we link that to strategy, and how we then infuse ethics to then go and fight the war. So it kind of applies right. from the macro to the micro, and I think that's, uh, in my view at least, that was the strength of the book because you can really link the power of the state uh, and the res- duty and responsibility of the state to the power of the soldier and the duty and responsibility of the soldier. Uh, and I'm conscious that both of those words, duty and, and, and responsibility, uh, are complex in themselves. Uh, but maybe uh, we can now dive in into, into the actual book. What is the main thesis of your book? And most importantly, who is it written for? Well, my Achilles book was written for academic audience. And it was uh, my scholarly track record for 15 years, different papers and things that I've written. This I wrote from scratch, and it was really written for more of a lay audience. It was written more for military practitioners, for people who are interested sort of broadly in national security, Mm. for people who are interested in, in philosophy, and mainly for my students, because obedience was something that kept coming up in many of the classes that I taught when I taught undergraduates. Hmm. Obedience always seemed to be coming up and was something that students were were interested in. And when I started thinking about writing this book, it was 2015, 2016. So we were in the midst of presidential election and all kinds of interesting things were coming up. And I also taught Army ROTC, participated in their program at this institution. So I had Army cadets Mm -hmm. uh, who took my military ethics class. So lots of these kinds of questions were coming up. So it was really to engage some of these questions in a deeper way. And when I looked around, there weren't a lot of philosophical treatments of obedience outside of religious obedience. Mm, mm. There's some treatments around civil obedience and disobedience, and there's a huge literature on that. But there wasn't a lot of literature just thinking about, well, what exactly is obedience? Mm. And in particular, when is it morally justified. And so the thesis of the book is that in order for obedience to be a virtue, and it's not always a virtue, but in order for it to be a virtue, it has to be justified in in certain kinds of ways. And I use just war criteria like legitimate authority and, and some other criteria to try to suss out under what conditions is obedience a virtue? How is it related to other virtues like loyalty and discipline? And then what does this look like in practice? How do we figure out what the right thing to do is? And ultimately, I come down to this idea that obedience is negotiation, Mm. that it's not as simple. And it's not either you're obedient or you're not. It's a range. There's a range between obedience and disobedience and lots of stuff in between. And that it's not just a virtue for military. So we have to think about this in civilian context and in lots of, um, I use Elster McIntyre's notion of community of practice. And certainly mm. the military is a community of practice. What does that mean, again, for the, for those who are yet to read the book? So a community of practice is essentially a group of people who are bounded by a shared history, values, sense of norms, sense of practices. So that mm. could be the U.S. Army. It could be the Naval War College. It could be a religious community. It could be... Rhode Island, where I live as a political community, could be the United States of America, it could be, you know, Australia. So there's different kinds of communities of practice in different 
yeah. sizes, but they share some kind of shared history, value, sense of what it means to be a member of that community. And of course, that can change. That changes over time. What it means to be an American is different now mm. than, than it was at our founding, mm. right? Mm. But there is this sense of belonging to this community. And, and part of what I was trying to get at, so much of the literature and obedience focuses on it as an individual question. Mm. Am mm. I going to be obedient to the dress code as a Naval War College or not? Mm. But I think it misses a really important piece, which is that obedience is not a virtue that one can practice in isolation. By definition, obedience involves other people. So when I tell my kid to go clean his room, right, whether he's obedient or not, there's a there's a community of practice. It may just be the two of us implicated there. So obedience is one of these really interesting virtues. Philosophers would say it's not just self-regarding, thinking about myself, but it's other-regarding. It involves mm. other people, too. Mm. Mm. And I guess see how it's embodied, how obedience embodied, is embodied in a particular community of practice dictates their behavior. And in many ways, in my mind, at least, you know, I kind of hear it almost as a subculture or, or habits of a particular social group, whatever that social yeah. group might be. It could be a football club, like you said, to a unit in the military. And, and, and it's the norms and practices and symbols that are carried and, and embraced by that particular social group, uh, that's all part of how they contextualized who they are and who, and, and also who they're not, how they set themselves apart right. from someone else. Yeah. Right. So it's um, not quite American football season yet, but I'm a Seattle Seahawks <laughs> a fan and that's how I identify, but I live in Patriots country, unfortunately. Right. And so there's very different ways of being right mm. between the two football clubs as there are between American football clubs as there are between, I guess we would say regular football, mm. right? You always mm. say regular football. And so we have to, I think obedience can't be understood apart from those communities. So mm. in the terms of the military, that's the military profession. In terms of, you know, citizenry, that is probably going to be our political and social mm. communities, mm. right? Yeah. And so those play a part too. Not It's mm. not just what the individual thinks. Yeah. So can we define obedience to set a starting definition of the term? And then we'll kind of explore a little bit more into, into you know, whether it's a virtue, the negotiation, loyalty, differences between these different terms that you that you unpack in the book. Yeah, so I'm going to do that academic thing, though, and say, on page 46. Please do. (laughs) And for us at Um, home, we'll follow along. (laughs) Yes, um, open your hymnals. Um, (laughs) So sort of the working definition of obedience at the beginning of the book is that obedience is the intentional and voluntary carrying out of orders or commands given by a commander or other authority figure who represents legitimate political authority in action. And that's one of the just war criteria, Mm, right? mm, So mm. it has to be intentional and voluntary, and it it has to be in something in response to some commands or orders. And those orders have to be issued by some kind of legitimate political authority relative to the context. So when Mm. I tell my 14 year old to go clean his room, I'm the legitimate political authority in my house, mm, mm. right? Yeah. So that's kind of where where I start, and then and then we have to move into thinking about what makes obedience a virtue. When is it morally justified, and and, and so on, and the arguments about about practical reasoning and negotiation are designed to 
you know, the first half of the book is fleshing out, okay, what does obedience look like? When is it a virtue? The second half is, okay, how would this work in practice? And how do we figure out when we should obey, whether we should obey, to what degree mm-hmm. should obey? And then talks about some case studies where people, in one case, engaged in mutiny and how that was actually a negotiation around the bounds of obedience. This was the French in World War One, I, I think, was it? They, they, yeah, the, you didn't use an the example, French yeah. mutinies on the Western Front, mm. which is really interesting mm. because it they renegotiated command authority mm. because mm. you can't fight a war if people won't, won't fight. Right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, you you know, that's the kind of, uh, you know, it's the idea of leadership, right? If you are not leading anyone, then are you really a leader? <laughs> it's the same kind of thing. If no one's obedient to you, then do we have obedience? One of the flags, the number of times I've put flags in the book is this idea of intentional and voluntary. Uh, and the reason those two particular words uh, uh, strike me, because my particular area of interest, you know, or that's something that I've explored in the podcast a number of times before, is to what extent are we as autonomous as we'd like to think that we are? And the reason I say that is, and, and, and in fact, I, I just a couple of days ago, I spoke to Jessica Wolfendale uh, after uh, of her book uh, um, on war crimes. Uh, and she does talk about the, the situationalist account and then the dispositional account, uh, you know, how the environment can shape us. And of course, she does rightly, I think, explain in the book that it's, yes, the situation matters, but so does the personality, character, the person that will ultimately produce behavior. But for me, intentional involuntary, if I can shape someone's behavior by creating certain conditions and circumstances, to what extent can I then say that it was their own volition that they actually did something? Uh, Because we know through a number of experiments, whether it might be obedience, uh, you know, I think you, you of course, uh, mentioned obedience, uh, Milgram's obedience research. To what extent did those people flick that switch or turn that knob uh, to the lethal electricity intentionally involuntary? And 60% or 62% of them did uh, in one case, at least. Uh, so, yeah, so just some kind of opening thoughts on that maybe. Yeah. So, first of all, if I had to, as, as, as we said before we got started, like I wrote this book very fast with really within the space of a year and a half. Which is incredible so, given the, 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 the yes. density and the, and the depth of the and book. And it was written I, from amazing. scratch. I just sat down and said, I think I'll write a book about obedience. <laughs> Uh, and so one of the things that I would clarify, if I could go back and rewrite it, which I think is implicit in the book, but it's not made explicit. There are many things that we think of as obedience that I want to argue are not actually obedience. Compliance is not obedience, right? And so I choose voluntary and intentional very intentionally. And part of what I'm thinking about, I'm sorry, we have to um, digress through Aristotle, Please. Um, yeah. But I'm a philosopher. So in book three of Nick and McKean Ethics, for those of you at home want to look it up, uh, he distinguishes between voluntary, involuntary, and mixed action. Mm-hmm. Um, involuntary actions are those that come from the agent. Mixed actions are where there's some kind of influence or pressure or something in the environment that gets the agent to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do but it still comes from them. So he gives this famous example of a ship's captain and the ship, the, the, he's sailing into a storm. And, and if he doesn't throw the cargo overboard, the ship's going to sink. Under normal circumstances, the, the captain would not be throwing cargo overboard, right? Mm. But because of the circumstances, he, he chooses to do so. But we would still say, okay, it wasn't a coerced action. It wasn't an involuntary action. He was still making a choice. And I think many of our actions in military ethics 
probably are more in the mixed realm, which worried me when it comes to obedience. Because if we're mm. going to reify obedience as a virtue, mm. yeah, I think it's got to be voluntary, right? And I think of a lot of what we do. So I work for the government. And so we have to do all these required trainings, mm-hmm. right? Left to my own devices, like that is not what I would be doing with my free time. I still choose to do it. Like mm. I sit down and put on my calendar. Okay, today I'm going to do my required training. So it's more of a mixed action. But I would Ooh, say my action, yeah. my actions there, I wouldn't say they're, they're obedience in the full sense. Mm, mm-hmm. I would say that's more like compliance. Mm, okay. And so, and I use the example, I use some examples from Tim O'Brien's writing from the things they carried. And part of, you know, he has, he, he tries to decide whether he's going to flee to Canada to evade the, the draft. Mm, mm. He ultimately decides not to, basically because as he describes, it's the path of least resistance. And I argue that that action is not actually obedient, right? Or it's passive mm-hmm. obedience is the term. That I use, which is really more like some kind of compliance, right? Yeah. So I think there's a sort of range of behaviors. Hmm. And if we're going to hone in, what I'm interested in is the kind of obedience that we would want to say is a virtue and that hmm. you have a moral obligation to engage in. And so I want a very narrow definition of obedience because I don't want compliance, right? On the other hand, I don't want something where people are coerced, clearly that's not obedience, right? Mm. If I hold a gun to someone's head and say, you're going to do that, and they do it, that's not obedience, right? Yeah, but so, and this so is, I guess, really... yeah. Yeah, so I was going to say, this is where um, it becomes interesting in my view. I mean, I, I've, I've, you know, we don't have to get into the debate of free will and and, and et cetera, but uh, in fact, I did have Greg Caruso on, who's a noted yeah. uh, free will skeptic. And I, and I tend to subscribe to the, the similar view that I'm a product of everything that's come before me. And I didn't make a choice of any of that. You know, I didn't choose where I was born, which language I speak, my circumstances, the people that I met who gave me an opportunity as much as I voluntarily at that instance, or at least, you know, there's a difference between voluntary and voluntary, but choice to me is, 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 is a difficult word. Because I, I don't necessarily agree that choice comes into it. It's only what thought pops up into my mind, which I don't control, that will ultimately determine the decision I, I make voluntarily. You know, and where this becomes a challenge for me is because the information that I have, the environment that I'm infused in, the the community of practice that I'm a part of, the embodied norms and, and behaviors that I'm co-creating and embodying and a part of, but also I'm consuming and belonging to. It's very difficult to demand of me such power, strength, to be able to step outside of all of that, the, the weight and the burden of my previous history and myself and my life and everything else, to step outside of that and then look at whether it's the right thing to do to be obedient or not in a particular given setting. Unless, unless I've had prior experience, unless I've hit previous bumpers that have made me think about these things. Right, which is why I like these conversations because hopefully there will be bumpers for someone, you know, as they're listening and they're driving. That you know maybe ethics and these types of discussions are important for what they do in the day to day life. But I wonder how you view choice and I guess the power of the environment and interacting with a person and everything they embody. Yeah, so I think back to Aristotle's view about mixed actions. I tend to be what philosophers call a soft determinist. Okay. So. 
I think that yeah, we're speaking yes, the same language. Of, I think <laughs> yes, there's the lots of influences in our in our environment, but it's not the case that we have no choices. So I liken it to a salad bar. You don't mm. control what's at the salad bar, mm-hmm. but once you walk up to the salad bar, you can among the choices that you're given, you can construct the salad in this in a certain way and and not in other. But is there not right? a reason that you're doing that? I mean, as in there's a reason why you like uh, you know tomatoes and not capsicum. Which is why uh, you're yeah, but it might be like, uh, and I tend to be on the soft, soft determinist side because I also think human beings are just unaccountable. Like mm. I might walk up to the salad bar and say, "I really like tomatoes," but today I think I'm going to try cucumbers, even though last time I had cucumbers, I got really sick because I'm just feeling rebellious today or whatever it is. Right? But there's the reason. There's the cause. Right. Where did that come or from? Or it could, or it could just be <laughs> like I feel like I feel like doing this today so i think there's lots of influences Mm -hmm. in our environment um now the the question about sort of being able to step outside and especially i think the you know this book came out in 2020 Mm. so the conversation about disinformation was not in the same place when i was writing and i was writing in 2016 2017 2018 so there was a conversation about disinformation there was disinformation Mm, going mm, on mm, mm. but people weren't obsessed with epistemology theory of knowledge in the way that they are now which is great as a philosopher like i'm super excited (laughs) to see that um because lots of epistemologists now have jobs that they didn't before so i think we do have to reckon with that but i think if Mm. we're going to say people are morally responsible then that requires something I think of as agency. Mm-hmm. So my my issue isn't did and you notice the language in the book is isn't did they choose this? It's did it come from them? Are they the agent? Are they the causal originator of the thing? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Uh, that doesn't. And I spent a lot of time undergraduate like dealing with action theory and thinking about determinism and all that kind of stuff. And that stuff gives me headaches. Um, so yeah, I think agency yeah. is a more productive way to think about it because then we could go in and look at the agency and say, are there influences and to what degree do those influences interfere with someone's agency? So I yes. have a 14 year old and I would say some things in his environment are such that he's not quite a full moral agent yet with regard to certain things and other things he completely is because mm-hmm. he's learned how to step back and step outside. But I do think we do have, if we're going to have moral responsibility, we do have somewhat of a moral obligation to tend to our own epistemology. Yeah. And, yeah. and many people either don't want to do that. I mean, it's a very difficult thing to do, right? Especially if, if looking at your own epistemology involves questioning or coming to terms with beliefs that are are really central. So Mm, mm. I I sort of hold a coherence, what's called a coherence theory of truth, right? I think we're epistemological conservatives. Mm -hmm. We have lots of beliefs. And for most people, they they fit together, right? We have a universe of beliefs that all fit together. Some of them may be like super wacky to other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But for you, that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah. they all fit together like leopard shoes are the center of my epistemology, <laughs> right? Yeah. Along with, with steak, right? But if my friend who's a vegetarian says to me, do you realize all the harm that comes from your steak eating? And I really take this on board and 
And I rethink that commitment to stake being the center of my epistemological universe. The problem is, is that isn't just one belief in isolation. It's connected to other beliefs. Other and ones. it's like yeah. changing out, you know, it's not changing out an end table in your living room. It's like mm. changing out your entire kitchen. You've got to recalibrate everything. And that's a pain. Like it's huge. And it's yeah. disorienting and it's existentially traumatic. Like we, people are not going to do that. Mm, mm, most yeah, people. Yeah. So I think that's a real question, but I think we can still have agency. It may be a more limited kind of agency, mm. but I think we still have some agency. And so we calibrate responsibility to the level of agency that people have, right? Yeah, the the yeah. ship's captain. We're not going to hold him to the same standard of responsibility for losing the the cargo mm. as we would if there had been no storm. And he's like, dude, I just didn't feel like I wasn't feeling this. So I just decided to throw it over where we like mm. Mm. be like, yeah. dude, hey, we're holding you totally responsible for that one. The the storm. There are like, no okay. mitigating circumstances. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's no mitigating circumstances. So yeah. I think that and I've argued this in. in in other places as well, that that I think agency is is a complicated notion. It's not as simple as you either have agency mm. or you don't, mm. right? I mm. think like with obedience, it's a range. So my teenager comes home late from mm-hmm. he was supposed to be home at a particular time, and I say to him, I was about to call the cops, like, what's up? And he was like, Yeah, I just didn't Forgot. check my phone. I lost track of time, and we were having a great time, and. Are those mitigating circumstances? Well, kind of, but they're ones that he could have addressed, right? They weren't outside of his control or they weren't, it wasn't peer pressure. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that I could look at and say, okay, you're a teenager, you're still, you know, the frontal lobe is still developing and you're still trying to figure things out. You just didn't check your phone. And then he says to me, yeah, I knew if I checked my phone, then I have to know what time it is. And I mm. know well, the that. thought, like, the thought didn't pop up into his mind. Right. And that's yeah, the, or it's just the yeah. bot pops up and he's like, well, no, I'm not going to do that. Cause if I know what time it is, then that I might have to change my behavior and I'm having a good time. And I just don't want to do that. Don't want to do that. Right? Yeah. 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 That's a yeah. different situation than if his phone was dead, he couldn't check his time mm. or then a lot of peer pressure his friends said no i really want you to stay Mm, mm, then we would have had a conversation about how do you deal with peer pressure and what are the consequences of that so i think there's different ways to think of agency so the private first class you know the youngest enlisted person in the military has agency but not the same kind of agency that a general or flag officer has right yeah and so i think we have to think about this in a more nuanced way so i wanted an account of obedience that was also going to be nuanced. It's yeah. not a, it's either obedience or disobedience. And it's either, and and I didn't want, I didn't want to call a virtue what is really compliance. Compliance is not a virtue. So yeah. this is an attempt to, to have a more uh, nuanced account. But of course, that means that it's really messy. Right? It, well, I think what it does is absolutely what it should do. And that's it. It should invite us to wrestle with these questions. And, and I think that's, in my view, which is why I say this is a book I'll keep coming back to because there's, and, and I love, absolutely love the fact that you've got the case studies in the last chapter and then the questions. I mean, <laughs> I mean, talk about professional military education. I mean, you could, you know, grab a platoon or a company or a battalion and 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 get them that to chew on inten- these. Yeah, that was quite intentional because this seems yeah. like a topic that whether you're civilian or military, 
like this. And this is a question that always came up with my undergraduates, like trying mm. to think about where are the lines here mm. and, and what would you do in X, Y, and Z situations? These are really difficult situations. Yeah. And the, the book debuted in March 2020, just as we were locking down for COVID. Oof. So my my grand book tour it wasn't going to be that grand, but I was yeah. going to go to DC and hang out with some friends. It was via Zoom. <laughs> um, ended up via Zoom, but mm. then in May 2020, the Lafayette Square happened, mm. where where General Milley marched to Lafayette Square with with President Trump, and you had the you know you had these these protests. Some people called them riots. We have mm. all of these questions about. Was the military going to be called to put down political protests and, and so on? So all of these questions happened. So when the first sort of round of calls came for podcasts like yours, right, what people were really interested in was Chapter 9, mm. which is on civil-military relations, which is something I sort of dabble in. It's not a central area, but mm. that's mm. the issue along with the issue eventually of vaccinations, right? Mm. Should members of the military obey the order if they're commanded to get the COVID vaccination. Mm. They're commanded to get all kinds of like the zillions of other vaccinations. But yes. this became a, a, a big issue, right? Mm. So mm. it was interesting mm. what I had in mind when I was writing the book, but then sort of events overtook. Yeah, it played out. After yeah. it was after it was already in the can and I couldn't change anything, then all this stuff happened. And mm. so mm. And then January 6th, of course, happened. Of course. Um, In fact, I mean, I think that was one of the questions. a year later. Yeah. And I think it's one of the questions kind of I alluded to at least, uh, and I know it was kind of a little bit later in in, in the piece I wanted to to address it, but we are talking about obedience and and we kind of talked about a little bit about the idea of misinformation, disinformation. The way I understand obedience, I mean, I can only, unless I, you know, unless it's blind obedience, which is what we don't want, and your book makes that very clear. We don't want blind obedience. We want... Well, as you say, intentional and voluntary. In other words, my agency matters. I'm not merely a tool of the state uh, that can be kind of wielded whichever way the state wants. Uh, and when I say I, I mean anybody that's in, in a military uniform. Yeah. And we had this uh, almost paramilitary in the US, well, not almost, it really is, uh, <laughs> militia, you know, as they would like to call themselves, oftentimes better armed than the, you know, certainly the local police force. And of course, when the president then says, you know, stand back and stand by. Yeah. And in their world, in their world, in their lived experience, the only information they have, the only bubble they embody, the only community and practice they live with is one that tells them that the state is oppressing you. The state will take your elections. The state will put chips into your arm. The state is, uh, you know, a cabal of, of child uh, molesters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if that's all they know, and then even the president says, you know, stand back and stand by, can we say that they're disobedient or are they obedient? I mean, where, you know, where's the line? Yeah. And I don't think it's an, I don't think it's an either or here, mm. right? Because mm-hmm. there's two things. First of all, we could ask not just what they believed, but what they had the capacity to know. So if you don't, so it's one thing if you believe X, Y, and Z is the case, like that everyone should wear leopard high heels. (laughs) Right? Maybe I really hold that belief and I orient my world around it, which I do. 
take a look at my closet and <laughs> you embody that through your practice yeah. but i am also fully aware that there are in principle other views right mm. and i could if i so chose go access those views i think they're wrong but i'm aware that they're there so the question here, and I think this is a really important question with disinformation. I don't have a mm. good answer to this. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe Clint Watts, who is a you know a really smart guy on on disinformation in the United States, could help us with this. Mm. I think there are some people who are in that bubble who are aware that there are other views, mm. and they just think they're wrong. They just choose to ignore them. In which case, then their actions that come about as a as a result of being in that bubble is still a choice. Mm -hmm. So, so there's a famous sort of example of like, you get drunk and get in a car and hit someone. The question becomes, did you choose to get drunk? Mm. If you did, right, then that action, right, is, is maybe mixed, but there's, it still came from you. Whereas mm. if someone slipped you some kind of drugs or something and you weren't aware there was alcohol or you weren't aware that you've been drugged and then you got in the car, that's mm -hmm. a different thing. Mm -hmm. So I think the group of people who literally don't know they're in a bubble and don't have access to any other information, I think there probably is a group of those people. I think it's probably really small. And so I think we have to treat them as a different case. Yeah. This is sort of the cult mentality. Yeah, right? that's right. Right. But I think there are other people who are like, listen, I like this particular worldview because I just don't like liberals. Mm, 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 mm. Right? and they make fun of me and i don't like them and you know they make me feel bad and so i'm choosing to be part of this community of practice even though i know there are other communities of practice that i'm all, one of the points that the book makes is that we are members of multiple communities yes. of practice at any given time right yeah, and with yeah. that i think comes moral obligations to tend our epistemological house now, sometimes we just decide, listen, it's where I'm living. It's leopard shoes. I don't care about the zebra people. I don't care about people who say you shouldn't wear flats. But I'm still aware that there's another view, right? Mm. So I think mm. that's why I think we have to look at agency in that way. If they really were deceived, if they really did not have access, and I think it's very powerful when the president of the United States mm. says something, because mm. we're supposed to be able to trust, mm. at least to some degree, mm. our political leaders. Yeah, yeah, that's right? right. Yeah. So I think that one is a special kind of case, but it impacts agency, right? Yeah. And also, just to go back to the dismantling of the cognitive dissonance we would experience, right? Yes, there might be competing theories, but the fact that I need to sort out my the, the framing of my thinking and my sense of belonging and my group identity and the, the identity of my community of practice, it's very easy to discard those. In fact, it's exactly what's happening. They're part of the conspiracy, right? The, the facts, well, we, we know very well, alternate facts, right? And then, of course, you know, our, the, the halo effect or halo bias, you know, you, right, and right. we can talk about President Trump as an example where doesn't matter what he did, and he said it himself, he could kill someone, you know, shoot someone, you know, Fifth Avenue wouldn't lose a single voter along those lines. But that's because he recognizes that the good that people perceive in him overrides anything else he might do because of this, I guess, bias that ultimately exists almost non-voluntarily. We have to admit that that's what bias is in many ways, right? As in, you know, it's my, it's my heuristics, cognitive heuristics that make my, my life easier by not having to wrestle with all these, all these various inputs that are coming in. Yeah, I guess I would push back a little bit mm -hmm. because I think there's a small group of people for which I would say 
that applies. Um, they they might have what Aristotle called, you know, unforeseeable ignorance, mm-hmm. right? Which renders their actions involuntary. I think you're responsible for your epistemological choices. I mm-hmm. choose mm-hmm. that leopard high heels are the bomb, right? Mm-hmm. Are the greatest since lace bread. Which means that if I decide to commit murder, which I would never as an ethic professor do that, but if I decided to commit murder on the basis of that belief, I'm responsible for that. I don't get to say, mm. oh, well, you know, I have this belief that like anyone who doesn't wear leopard high heels is is wrong. Well, I chose that belief. But do right? people think like that? I mean, did, in your experience, have we found that people actually think like that? That people, people, um, you know, sit there d- d- debating, discussing, or, you know, cognitively making I, choices for to believe? I don't think it's like they're not in a philosophical sense of mm, I will mm, now mm. sit down and, and reflect. But my experience, I'm from Montana, mm, mm-hmm. which is a more conservative state and know many people who who are are more conservative politically and when you talk to them and for some people it's they made a choice a long time ago to be a conservative yeah. and so they see this as whoever the conservative standard barriers they're going to go with whoever that is mm-hmm. right because Regardless. they made yeah. that choice yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. which we see that ago. in australia as well a lot i mean it's right a, yeah. right yeah, yeah, so yeah. there are other people who really like when trump came on the scene like they found him entertaining they thought he was cool and he had this rep from like the 80s mm-hmm. and you know so there were lots of different reasons why people might be attracted to whether it's Oath Keepers or the Three Percenters. We have mm. lots of those groups in Montana, <laughs> lots of those militia yeah. groups in Montana. Yeah. The Unabomber was hanging out in Montana mm, mm, for a mm. while, right? So there's lots of reasons I think people adopt views, which some of which are complicated, but to say that they don't have any choice, right? Mm, I think mm. we, we might have different reasons for mm. adopting a view, but I think for some people... They might say, listen, I wasn't crazy about Trump, but like, I don't like how liberals talk down to me mm, or mm, I don't mm. like like people look down on me because I'm not comfortable with X, Y and Z. Mm, right. Mm. So I think and, and disinformation is really serious. And you're right about the bias mm, and heuristics. Mm, but part mm. of what we teach at the war college is hey, it's to unpack that. You, yeah. Yeah. It's to unpack yeah, what yeah, are yeah. your biases? What are what are your heuristics? And mm. I think my experience has been that. A lot of people just, it's not that they're uncritical, it's that they've made a decision, Mm, mm, right? They're mm. sort of aware of things, but they choose to, you know, sort of like the Johnny Dent, you Mm. know, Amber Heard trial, like people picking sides to be like, yeah, I know Johnny Dent did all this stuff, but I really like Pirates of the Caribbean. And so I'm going to be in Camp Dent, right? So I think there's all kinds of complicated reasons. And I'm really nervous about just saying, well, because you were the victim of disinformation, that you don't have any agency or any responsibility for the actions you take based mm, on that disinformation. Mm, mm. Now, I think there are different levels of responsibility, mm. right? You could have the person that really is clueless and consumed all this stuff and who is radicalized online. And, and we see those, mm, right? Mm. And they get so pulled in that we would say, yeah, in some sense, they've lost their certainly epistemological agency and if they're acting on the basis of being essentially brainwashed yeah right yeah. that changes the picture of responsibility but if i decided to join the oath keepers because i want to usher in the next civil war and i'm consuming all of this stuff and i mm. made that intentional choice like i think we should hold that person responsible 
right? Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I don't mean to be um, confrontational. That's not my intention. My intention because I'm really no, trying. No, no, I think it's a it's a great question. Yeah. Like, yeah. How much yeah. response? How how responsible can we hold people mm. who have consumed or been exposed or influenced by disinformation? Mm. And I think there's a range of of influence and a range of, yeah. of agency. Just yeah. like, did you take the first drink, mm. and then things just kind of got out of hand? Yeah. Or did someone slip you a Mickey in mm. your drink and you had no idea that you were intoxicated? Right. Yeah. I think those are very different cases and there's all kinds of cases in between. So I think yeah. the disinformation thing isn't something I talk about in the book, but I think it's something that I'm glad you brought it up because I think it really does. It impacts that agency question, how we think of to what degree is the obedience voluntary. There's certainly a lot of literature on this in war crimes literature, mm, yeah, yeah. In, in Holocaust literature about to what extent. I mean, uh, Chris Browning, who wrote the book Ordinary Men, was uh, my colleague at PLU mm. when I first got there. It's a great book if you haven't read it. Mm, no, I think no. it raises this issue about the influence of ideology uh, and what it can do to just ordinary people. Yeah. Who, yeah. who, who just said, yeah, this is that. Yeah, I absolutely buy this and I'm going to do heinous things. So. Yeah. And it's a, because, not- and, and obviously I have a, obviously a personal connection as an ethnic Bosnian who's Arguably, ethnic group, not myself personally, was was targeted for for mm. genocide. Yeah. It, you know, I'm, I'm trying to wrestle enough, and I've been spoken to people who were directly impacted by it to try and understand how how is it that good people come to do evil things? Because I mean, yeah. and, and you know, and I talk about war crimes a lot because nobody's born a war criminal. There are elements that will, and, and in fact, when I spoke with David Wedham about this, um, he brought up the fact that uh, I forget his name, the a sergeant in the Royal Marines. Uh, name escapes me now, but um, his circumstances, and he was the one that executed a, a, an Afghan prisoner, Taliban prisoner, it was used as his defense, not merely mitigating circumstances. The fact that he didn't, you know, he was fatigued, he didn't receive all the right training, his father had recently passed away, either just before he deployed or while he was on deployment. So his uh, his his cognitive state uh, was deeply affected by his his environment, and he was used to turn over from, I think, uh, murder to uh, I don't I don't know. In other words, his crime was diminished, right. and it was used as a defense, not merely as mitigating circumstances, which is a powerful recognition. I think a relatively new one that we can even talk about these things. Uh, and I think that's the point you're making that this is all post realpolitik, post might is right, post the CNN factor, where we actually get to see things and as civilians get to reconcile with what we see on our TVs of our own soldiers doing in our own name. And it's very difficult to recognize that my social group can do evil things. And again, for all the various biases that we know, of, you know, in-group versus out-group and, you know, everything my people do uh, is good and just and, and, and righteous and the rest, the others aren't. Uh, so I think an obedience by its definition, as you, as you described it, i.e. intentional, voluntary and legitimate authority is so deeply infused in how I conceptualize the world around me, which is the reason I brought in Trump and the kind of Oath Keepers, because ultimately we can say it was intentional, voluntary, and by the absolutely most legitimate authority you know, in the country. Uh, but, but here I want to maybe t- ask you about um, Aaron Vatada, who Ooh. chose not to go to Iraq um, in 2003. Uh, he was a second lieutenant, I think, at the time. Yep. And 
of course, was then court-martialed, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's only post the realization and, and kind of the general global opinion shifting that this was not really a just war and, uh, you know, that Iraq might have been a mistake. And, of course, Chilcot review in the in the UK, which basically explicitly says it was a it was a, that, yeah. that it was not, you know, that it was a, it was groupthink and we need to we need to stop and, and think about it next time. What was it about him that nudged him into, I guess, disobedience, given that everybody else was, hey, we're going? Yeah, so it's a super interesting case because where I mm. taught during that time was literally next door to a joint base Fort Lewis McCord, which is oh, wow. where he was stationed. Oh, right. Wow. And I was teaching ROTC cadets. So this was the subject of some Ooh, absolutely, shall we say, yeah. energetic conversations <laughs> for a couple of years in my class. And yeah, and I think at the time, while there were people um, like myself who were opposed on record, opposed to the second Iraq war, I think we were a minority. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I opposed on just war grounds. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think he did as well, right? In his defense, and, he, and used, he did yeah. as well. Yeah. He said, yeah. listen, I'll go, I'll go back to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Like he mm-hmm. can deploy me to Afghanistan because I think that's a just war, but I won't go to Iraq. So my sense, I, I never talked to him, but my mm-hmm. sense from the reports and, and conversations and, and people who knew him was that this was a principled stand, right? And and I think the fact that he was willing to go back to Afghanistan demonstrate that so this mm. wasn't a, i just don't want to deploy he's like listen send me to afghanistan so no. i'm not i'm not going to iraq so that but that raises an interesting question about what information was he basing that judgment on and so mm. chapter seven in the book is about prudence mm. uh, what aristotle calls practical reasoning this capacity to think about yeah and not in a Loved platonic yeah. a wisdom kind of way but in a very practical deliberation kind of way you know, what are the relevant factors in the case and what do I need to think about in order mm. to get to a judgment that this war is immoral and I shouldn't deploy? And so I think that piece, that capacity that we have to think about things and for him to step outside, you know, and, and it became clear later, there are other people who agreed with him, but who weren't willing to take the same stand mm. for career reasons, for peer pressure reasons, for lots of not wanting mm. to disappoint their mom reasons. So were they the so were they disobedient? So so the interesting question is if you know something's wrong mm. or if you think something's wrong mm. and you do it anyway, like how are we to think mm. about that? Yeah, exactly. Right? That, so, yeah, so I think absolutely. I think we could say, you know, I think from the perspective of the US military at the mm. time, mm-hmm. he made a voluntary intentional choice. Yeah. 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 And he was very, in the book, I talk about a range of between obedience and disobedience. He was out there. He was like, he was explicitly disobedient. He's, he made public pronouncements to say, I will not go. He's not like my 14 year old. He's like, <laughs> I tell yeah. him to clean his room. And he's like, he's slow rolling it and passive aggressive. Mm. Oh, I didn't hear what you said. I didn't get the text, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. That's yeah, somewhere yeah. in between. With Tata was like, I'm not going. He was in the newspapers, like he was very like, I would say that was explicit disobedience. Mm. I think looking at that, I would say that was justified disobedience, Mm. Mm. right? Because he, and the the thing about if you're going to be disobedient, first of all, you have to be willing to take the consequences, which he did. 
But you also, I make the case, you have to be able to articulate the reasons for your disobedience to your community of practice. Yeah, yeah. This is a slippery slope for me. This is this is where it gets tricky in, for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In, in his case, there were two communities of practice. One was the military, mm. right, the profession. Mm. Mm. And the other was the broader sort of civilian community uh, for whom he works, mm. Mm. right? Mm. Everyone in the military works for me. Well, not yeah. me personally. No, no. I, yeah, yes. The citizenry. Yes. He's employed the by the state States. and the citizens. Right. You know. yeah. And he's, if he'd gone to Iraq, he would have been doing what he was doing in my name, mm. right? Yeah. So there's, um, you know, sort of two audiences. And if you're going to be disobedient, my argument is that you have to try to rationalize that or explain that yeah. or articulate that to the community of practice in question. And it may be the case, as in the case of, and I don't remember if I talk about in this, this in the book, Colin Kaepernick and his NFL protest was an interesting case because, once again, uh, multiple communities of practice to which he's appealing, multiple mm. audiences. Some of those audiences he was persuasive to, others he was not, and then there were consequences. The mm. NFL, notably, was one of the audiences he, he was not able to persuade, right? But there has to be this attempt to make that articulation in terms of the shared values of that community of practice. Yeah. So Watada made made his articulation in terms of the standard of the standards and the norms of the military profession, in particular, just war principles. Yeah, based right? on the based on the knowledge and research he himself did in preparation right. to deploy, which to me right. is is basically he he read and got exposed to information that made him question the dominant narrative of the community of practice right. that he's a part of. When I right. transfer that onto the Oath Keepers or whatever other group uh, in the US or the non or the vax hesitant community, right. I'm forced to apply the same lens on them. But I'm yeah. also, because of my own biases and my own understanding of the world, I'm then also, you know, <laughs> I have no choice but to, but to shake my head and go, what are you thinking? But then I have to step back and go, okay, well, this is what they're reading. This is what they're seeing. This is the way they view the world. So the Oath Keepers are the Aaron Vatadas of free America, right? In their, so, in so, their view. I, I, and, that's how I, and that's where my issue So my question uh, would be, hmm. could we say, because I, I hear what you're saying, could we say that the Oath Keepers attempted to articulate their position to the broader political community of practice? Right to persuade people before they engaged in violence. Right. Well, I mean, if they got it, memberships, it, it, they must have surely. I mean, if they're getting yeah, members, so, they must have. Yeah. So that raises this interesting question. Like Millie talked about this notion of disciplined disobedience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, which I love, and he yeah. says, but he says the tricky part with disciplined disobedience is you have to be right. <laughs> yes, exactly. So and we can really only yes. judge if this was a good act of disobedience after the fact, right? Exactly. So we look back, we look back and say, yeah, Aaron Wittada got it right. Right now we're looking at it saying, no, the Oath Keepers got it wrong. Yeah. But is it possible that in 20 or 30 years, you know, we would have a different view? So I yeah. think, yeah, I think you're right. I think this is why, you know, people get nervous about books about obedience and disobedience uh, uh, again i just have to emphasize i love it i love the book so, no, so please don't no, take my and pushing I, back and, and asking think, no i'm yeah, enjoying yeah, it immensely yeah, yeah. but i think there there is a danger right mm. to both obedience and to disobedience mm, mm -hmm. right 
because we have lots of cases of Jim Jones, of other cult leaders who get people to do things, really heinous, awful things. Ordinary men is another example where we get people to do things or people disobey laws and then hurt other people because God told me to do it, or yes. my inner voice told me to do it. And so part of the book is to try to have some kind of check mm-hmm. on whatever the epistemological universe is that you're in. You take the judgments that you acquired, and then you have to test that against your community practice. Now, it could be the yeah. community practice is wrong, too, but at least we have some kind of check, and that's where the negotiation thing may come in, because professions change over time political communities of practice, religious communities of practice change over time. So I want to leave the space for that negotiation, but there is danger, mm, right? Mm. And I don't also don't want to, you know, mitigate that. Mm. But at the same time, we want people to disobey when yeah. they're asked bad stuff, yes. right? Eddie yeah, Gallagher exactly. should not have done what he did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My dissertation. Just for was my on, audience that doesn't is not necessarily familiar yeah. with the kind of seals piece of, of, of you know he committed war crimes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, my dissertation was on the My Lai massacre from the mm. Vietnam War, mm. where Lieutenant Callie's mm. troops killed upwards of five hundred people and and engaged in other mm. heinous yeah. behavior. And his commander's response that's you know, went in the trial was, I didn't know what Callie was up to. Well, mm. you should have, right? Mm. Because mm. you're, so that gets back to that, not just what you know, but what are you supposed to know? Yeah. Right? yeah, um, that's, the, so, yeah. yeah. that's why this is so important because there's a mirror. You, the, your book, the, the, and again, I, I, I kind of, I'm a visual person. The way I see it in my mind, it forces mm-hmm. the reader to put a mirror on their own behaviors and their own biases, the biases and the embodiment, the symbols, the subcultures, everything that when they put on, in this case, a uniform, everything that comes with that, as it applies to them in their lived experience as as part of that unit, as part of that particular community of practice. And I think that's, as you said before, that's a really, really difficult thing to do and to do so honestly, because of all the baggage that we carry, all the biases that we carry, all the kind of you know, evolutionary byproduct of, uh, you know, why we even have biases. That's a, yeah, it's a lot to wrestle with, but, you know, putting the mirror on is step one before you can start looking at, you know, someone else and understanding someone else. Yeah. One of the things I think about in the last two years, like there's things that have happened that I'm not sure when I go back and look at the book, like what I think about what Mm. I wrote, Mm. I had to rewrite it now how I would think about it, you know, the compliance issue. Well, just to ask you on that then, just while we're on Watara, uh, but uh, Stuart Schiller, the Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Schiller, who yeah. very publicly <laughs> went on LinkedIn yeah. and basically had an outburst for a number of minutes about the botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, accusing right. the higher-ups. And, of course, then there's an entire saga that goes from that, you know, him being ultimately, I think, discharged or fired. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, again, you know, he he will argue that, and many of his supporters, if you just read the comments on LinkedIn, which is a meant to be a professional uh, platform rather than a, a Twitter-like platform yeah, yeah, or Facebook, yeah. right? But it gets really, really emotional and really deep and really serious very, very quickly. And two camps emerge, one that is completely in favor uh, you know, that it's the right thing to do to stand up and, you know, you're a hero. Thank you, sir. All of these kind of 
notions of glorifying what he's done. And then there's the other side, right? The other side that's saying, well, no, you should, you know, if you had some some issues and some challenges about the command, you should have done it appropriately from inside the system, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you're a disgrace to the uniform, you've disgraced yourself, blah, 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 right? So, so it's going to be years from now that we determine whether he's a hero or a villain, just like Matata, but ultimately he's being absolutely disobedient, right? Yeah, or at least at least on that end of the spectrum. I mm. mean, I think we have lots of these examples. Not that I'm equating Schiller and and Hugh Thompson from mm. mm-hmm. from the Milai Massacre, but Hugh Thompson was not a popular dude mm. at the time, right? It's only many years later that just give us context as to what what what, what was Hugh Hugh's Thompson role. was the the helicopter yeah. pilot at the Milai Massacre Amazing. who yeah. basically sets his helicopter down and tells his gunners to train their guns on Cali's troops, on the American troops that were massacring Incredible, yeah. um, and sexually assaulting non-combatants in this village. And, and so if they don't stop, shoot them, right? Mm. Which mm. arguably was perhaps disobedience, but for sure was disloyalty, mm. right? Mm. 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 And arguably saved quite a few lives. Mm. Right. And later he was commended for that. And but he was not a popular dude at the time. And and Callie, who was in command at Milai at the time, was reified and people mm. said they're railroading him. And so I think you're raising this really interesting question, whether it's Schiller or the Oath Keepers mm. or mm. the anti-vaxxers, about these judgments we're making are in fact based on our own epistemological world yeah right yeah and so what do we do when we disagree about epistemology when we disagree about the basic facts of the matter or about the worldview or or whatever it is that we use to make these judgments and i think Mm. that's a really i try to address that in the book but Mm -hmm. it's a complicated thing yeah because i know that at least in the united states maybe in australia as well a lot is made of the political polarization. Yeah. But I really think people need to like go read like the Federalist Papers and like the the hot sheets at the time of the American Revolution. Political polarization is not really a new thing. Hmm. Right. So and people have always disagreed fundamentally about really, really, really deep stuff. Hmm. Hmm. And hmm. so that question of how we navigate obedience given differences in worldviews or given differences about what we think the right thing is, whether it's vaccines or going to war or getting out of a war or gun control or abortion or or whatever it is, right? I think these are very difficult things to, to navigate, but I do think we have to step back and I'm not willing to call sort of uncritical compliance or passive obedience or blind obedience. I'm not willing to call that a virtue. No, I don't I, think that's yeah. what moral people do. I think yeah. moral people do wrestle with these yeah. things and think about it. And they may make the wrong choice. They mm. may lose the argument, too. So this yeah. business of appealing to your community of practice, arguably Colin Kaepernick lost part of the argument, mm. right? Maybe mm. he's going to be persuasive in the long term. But he, you know, in some sense, we could say, at least at the time, he seemed to lose the argument. But I think that's part of it. But he, yeah, he attempted yeah. to make an appeal. It wasn't just, listen, this is what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to tell you why. Right. Part of being an ethical person as opposed to just a moral person 
is the ability to articulate your reason. Yeah, so. yeah, I, 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 and I couldn't agree more. And 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 I and and I also wholeheartedly agree that blind obedience is not virtue. But then I have to. Then I also have to then come back and say, well, was I then blindly obedient when I deployed uh, on my operations? You know, were all of those people that uh, uh, went to Iraq blindly obedient? I mean, are they not virtuous? You know, should they be part of uh, some collective um, punishment because they, by by that definition, they have some moral guilt uh, in contributing to an unjust war? Even if they might afford it justly, et cetera, et cetera, right? And and then you know it begs the bigger question: How do we then prevent that from happening the next time around? How do we equip and educate our soldiers and officers? Because we can't expect them all to be philosophers, nor do we want them to, <laughs> right? We can't. We can't no, afford. No, because we gotta get we gotta get stuff done. Things right? done. Right? Things so, to do. So, and I do want to kind of kind of as we, as we lead out of this discussion, land on some. Uh, ways on how we actually train for this kind of reasonable challenge, and I think that's what that's kind of what you what you conclude the book with, or, or critical uh, obedience. How do we train for that? How do we instill that quality in in our soldiers and our officers? And, and first of all, while this is important for soldiers and officers, it's also important for civilians because not just on the soldier. So if the yes. Iraq War was an unjust war, I bear the responsibility ultimate responsibility for that, mm, mm, right? Mm. That isn't just on the soldiers. So in terms of training, I think something like the, the I love the the Brits and the, the reasonable challenge idea and critical obedience. I think this is practice, which is why there are questions in the back of the book. That's why there are case studies. So I think what you do is you gather, you, you gather your people around and, and you talk about some reasonable scenarios that you might face or you think are going to happen. And you do what the Stoics say, we're going to re- pre-rehearse evils, right? So we're going to think about this situation before we get into it. And where are your lines? Like getting into a situation is a bad time to think about where your red line is. You want to think about your red lines in advance. And so I think this is something, and it doesn't have to, like I know everyone's training schedules are, are jacked. Like this could be a five, 10 minute discussion map. Or you watch a movie where there are these issues. There's lots of great pop culture movies where these issues come up. My favorite awful one is Tears of the Sun with Bruce Willis. Mm, but it has these mm, kinds of issues. Yeah. So watch the movie. Talk about it with your with your mates. Mm. And, and let's think about these things. So I think the more practice people have at thinking about these issues, maybe with really, really small issues, Mm. then it's that habituation, it's that practice, and then it gets easier. It's not ever easy, but mm. when uh, when when you go into combat, like I'm assuming, my, my students tell me I'm right about this. They don't just hand you like <laughs> yeah. a firearm and say, good luck with that. Mm. No, like you get trained and you have to take it apart and you have to practice with it and you have to do all the stuff and you got to drill. We do all kinds of drills in the military. You got to do moral drills too. Mm. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same thing. I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, it's. A, I did find it interesting you brought the Stoics in, who, if if my reading of uh, and memory uh, serves appropriately, they were hard determinists, uh, which I find. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's another book. Well, the next <laughs> book is the Stoic, but um, yes, that's a different kind of problem. But but they did believe in rehearsing. Yes. Right. Yeah. And thinking about bad things that could happen to you so that you could learn to calibrate. They're really worried about emotions. Worry, you know, calibrate your emotions and your judgment. 
Yeah. Right. And I think that's something that we can do in, in training environments and to and, and to have conversations. So there's some things you don't want people disobeying about. Right. Mm-hmm. But and, and I talk about the difference between a garrison and combat context. Mm-hmm. But there mm-hmm. are things where like the situation has changed or there's something going on, you know, where we would have wanted someone to speak up or we would have we want someone to say okay, why are we doing this again? Mm. And I think that that's important. And it's important to be able to tell the difference between the two, yeah. right? Yeah. To know when to ask the question to mount the reasonable challenge and when mm. it's not time for a committee discussion, as Princess Leia in Star Wars said. Which, which is why I kind of, <laughs> the, the way I visualize it in my mind is this kind of idea of bumpers. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's very difficult for me to expect somebody to know something that they have never encountered, right? When they don't know what they don't know. So how can I hold them accountable or judge them for that if they, if it's outside of their reach, right? And they had, I would say, did they have any capacity to, so. But I guess everybody has capacity, especially now with the internet. You know, arguably everybody has the capacity to go and read about uh, just war. Well, and it's not just that. that. It's, yeah. it's it's moral imagination. I don't. Mm. I've never been on that, mm. right? But I think a lot about it and mm. talk to people who have and read poetry and watch movies mm. And, mm. and and try to figure out. And I talk about this in the book, right? That moral imagination is something mm. that can help us bridge the gap. Now, you have to have a disposition, I think, yeah. or be willing to have the disposition to do that. So there's sort of what you don't know. But then are you aware that there's stuff that you don't know? I'm mm. aware that I have a limited amount of knowledge about combat. And so I try to fill in my gaps. Now, if I just thought, hey, listen, I read this one book once. I've got it. I That's saw the problem, full, isn't it? Yeah. Full metal jacket. <laughs> I've got it covered. Guys, let yeah. me tell you what combat is like. Yeah. Right? Like people like yeah. you be looking at me going, girlfriend, I don't think so. Like, yeah. like well, that I mean, would be I, weird. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I say this uh, publicly in the, in, in the pod as a number of times. I mean, I've never been, I've never fired a gun in anger. Uh, so I've never been a, a combat uh, officer or soldier, uh, but I can certainly uh, empathize. I've been on the receiving end of uh, of various forms of munitions as a civilian, but it's, uh, but it does, yeah, all of that plays into the same, same, I guess, discussion of what they could have known and should have known. And it's a tricky one, which I think is why the, these types of conversations hopefully can reach a number of people to at least invite them to go and look for things. Because, And the reason I say this is because, like, just because someone can, like, I've got a lot of friends, a lot of my peers in the Special Forces community, and I know for a fact that they would love to be able to read, to sit down and read and discuss these things. But it's just not part of their everyday experience to have the capacity to do so, purely because their jobs are of such that, there's no time, unfortunately, and there's never enough of them. And, you know, everybody wants something from them and they have to, absolutely have to embody an idea as a self-protective mechanism for the jobs that they have to do. They would love to be able to sit down and read and talk and, and have these kind of uh, discussions and this type of discourse. But unfortunately, their lived experience and the community, uh, their community of practice doesn't, unfortunately, embody that as the norm, as one of the kind of behaviors that they you know, have capacity to to do, which is, yeah, which is a challenge. Except, except mm-hmm. I find it hard to believe that any special forces units fail to do after action reviews or 100%. what we call hot yeah. wash Agreed. in the Navy. That's a place to have these conversations, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. 
even if it's only 30 seconds, even yeah, if it's a minute absolutely. or two. So, so I understand the time issue, but then mm. there's a, and this is maybe a good place to pull the strands together. My question is what moral obligations do we have around our own epistemological commitments and universe? What do I have an obligation to know? What do I, what is my obligation to be aware of my own biases, my own heuristics? If I'm going to live in the leopard shoe bubble, like what are <laughs> yeah. my moral obligations yes. around that? Certainly I can choose that, but there are moral obligations that go with that. If I choose to be a member of a religious community of practice, there are moral obligations that come not just to my other community members, but to people outside of that community that maybe my community of practice has harmed, mm-hmm. right? So I think we're sort of pushed back to that you know, disinformation, epistemology mm, uh, mm. question, which is not as prominent in the book as it would be if I were writing the book mm, now, given mm, the mm. last, say, five years in American mm, mm, politics mm. and international, international events. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, and and on that note, I, I think, Pauline, I do, again, just want to emphasize once more how much I've enjoyed it. And in many ways, I'm envious of your students, because if this is the if this is the density of your discussions, then uh, that I'm slightly envious uh, for them having the time to to enjoy these discussions, uh, because that's I really do believe that this is this is absolutely one critical part of it is to you know make the time you know whether it is in a hot wash and AAR type arrangement to discuss not just the tactics but to discuss the ethics uh, of of particular. Uh, circumstances, you know, missions, operations, both for the military, but then, as, uh, and I do want to stress again, I wholeheartedly agree with the civilian aspect, which which is something uh, that that I uh, did want to touch on, but uh, I think we've we've kind of broadly covered it, uh, and and I'm also conscious that we jumped around a little bit, so I'll just uh, throw over to you if there's any kind of final comments you want to make in case you didn't, you know, make some points that you wanted to make. No, just first of all, thank you for the conversation and reading the book. And reading it so closely and such great questions and the kinds of things that you're raising and, and very gently pushing back on are really, really important um, questions. So I really value the conversation. And I hope people, especially people who don't have time to read, will listen to the podcast and at least start thinking about mm-hmm. some of these issues. Because at the end of the day, I wrote the book because my students asked me hard questions about obedience. So Mm, this mm. is in some way, this book is inspired by them and a gift back to them. Mm. But also as a parent with Mm. two boys and in the dedications, I dedicate the book to Mac and Trevin because, you know, when you're a parent, you learn lots about obedience and disobedience. Mm. I've got a two-year-old, so uh, I, you know. (laughs) So so you know that. So so these are sort of of life questions that Mm. we are, that that we're navigating. So I hope people will listen to to the podcast and and at least just be aware that maybe there's some questions they should be asking themselves. And certainly these are the kinds of questions my students at the War College, we wrestle Mm. with this stuff Mm. all the time and Mm. they ask really good questions and they're really hard. And I think in the United States right now, we're seeing these hearings around Mm. January 6th. And I think we're wrestling with trying to sort all of this out and what it means. So these are not easy questions. So hopefully people find the conversation useful. Absolutely. Uh, And on that note, Pauline has been absolutely fascinating. I knew it would be, but uh, it certainly surpassed my expectations. So uh, thank you so much once again for the time you've given me today. And thank you for having me. 
thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, and until the next time.